0: What makes someone confess after they've gotten away with murder? Some are racked with guilt, haunted by the ghosts of people they have killed. Others are optimistic, whose admission is for the attention of the media, or alternatively, they confess to reduce their sentence. And still others are taken down by the confessions of their accomplices, family, or even the victims themselves. The confessions that may get them. Mysteriously listed. Number 10. Derek Medina. Moments after Derek Medina shot his wife eight times in a fatal attack in 2013, he posted a picture of her corpse on Facebook, along with a caption reading, R.I.P. Derek Medina, who was in his early 30s at the time of the crime, killed his wife, 26-year-old Jennifer Alfonso. The gruesome photograph would remain on his Facebook status for around five hours before being taken down. The photograph shows Jennifer slumped in the corner of a room, her legs folded beneath her, with blood around her neck and arms. Confused friends, having seen the picture, responded with comments asking what had happened. The autopsy would later suggest that she was cowering in the corner when Medina shot her at close range. Medina would later claim that before the crime, his wife had threatened him with a knife and that he had suffered from years of torturous mental and physical abuse. He posted the picture of her dead body on his Facebook profile, along with another post that read, I'm going to prison or getting a death sentence for killing my wife. Love you guys. Miss you. Take care. Facebook people, you will see me in the news. My wife was punching me and I'm not going to stand for it anymore. So I did what I did. I hope you understand me. Medina also claimed that Jennifer had been taking hallucinogenic bath salts shortly before the murder. However, According to prosecutors, friends and family of Jennifer, it seemed unlikely that she did this as she did not have a history of drug abuse of any kind. They also said it seemed unlikely that he was acting in self-defence. They claimed that she did not abuse him and that he had actually been planning to kill her because she had been threatening to leave him. It was also significant that he was much taller and heavier than she, and would perhaps not need to rely on a gun to defend himself. A home surveillance video from earlier in the day shows a physical altercation between the two in which a flurry of what is allegedly gunpowder swells in the air. Medina's 10-year-old daughter was in the house at the time of the murder and was left alone in the home with the body, while Medina went to the police station to confess to his crime. Strangely, Medina was a self-help writer and had self-published books bizarrely titled World, Just Ask Yourself Why We Are Living a Life Full of Lies and How Am I, An Emotional Writer, Made All of My Professional Dreams Come True, Blocking Society's Teachings. He was eventually convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison. Number 9. Walter Grant Kaiser. In January 1986, Sergeant Floyd Moore was second in command of the Ray County, Florida Sheriff's Office Special Investigations Unit. He was well liked in the department and he was a father. On January 28, 1986, Moore was working at his second job as a security guard at an apartment building in Panama City. Moore was dressed in a sheriff's uniform and he had his radio. At some point in the evening, he radioed and asked for a mark unit to come to the apartment building. When the unit arrived, the officers were shocked by what they found. Sergeant Floyd Moore was lying dead in the parking lot. He'd been shot in the head with his own revolver. His body was sent to the morgue while his fellow officers searched the crime scene. They also interviewed people who lived in the apartment building, but no one saw anything suspicious. Based on their initial search, they had no leads and they had no suspects. It appeared that Moore was just shot at random, and that would make it more difficult to figure out who had killed him. But then the investigators got a call from the morgue, The medical examiner found something interesting in Moore's shirt pocket. It was a driver's licence belonging to 37-year-old Walter Grant Kaiser. The police found Kaiser and arrested him the following day. They determined that Moore caught Kaiser attempting to rob the apartment building he was watching over. Moore asked to see his ID and then put his ID in his shirt pocket – Moore asked Kaiser to follow him out to the parking lot where the Mark unit would be arriving. When Moore turned his back on Kaiser, Kaiser reached for Moore's gun and shot him in the head. Kaiser then panicked and forgot he had given his licence to Moore, so he ran away without grabbing it. Kaiser was convicted and sentenced to death. His death sentence would be eventually overturned and it was downgraded to life in prison. He is currently serving his sentence at the Jackson County Correctional Facility. Moss family and his fellow officers like to think that he solved the last case he ever worked on, which was his own murder. Number eight. Russell Samika. In 1975, 20-year-old Michael Mansfield was attending Lincoln College in Lincoln, Illinois. For Christmas break, he returned to his family's Rolling Meadows, Illinois home. On New Year's Eve, Michael received a call, and he told his parents he was going to meet a friend who lived in Arlington Heights. Sadly, Michael never returned home. Six months later, on June 2nd, 1976, 51-year-old Ruth Martin of Lincoln, Illinois, didn't show up for work. On the floor of her garage, the police found blood and a 22 caliber bullet. Her car was found abandoned two days later in a hotel parking lot in Bloomington, Illinois. In the trunk of the car, there was a lot of blood. The blood was tested and it was found to be the same blood type as Ruth's. The police searched for her, but she was nowhere to be found. Several months later, the investigations into both disappearances were at a standstill. At the time, the police had no reason to believe that the crimes were connected. The victims disappeared from different cities, they were different sexes and ages, and they didn't know each other when they were alive. Then, months later, on October 9, 1976, the police were called to the home of Jay and Robin Fry in Lincoln. They had been shot to death with a shotgun. Someone had forced them onto their knees, and Robin was shot first in the chest. Jay was shot next as he leaned over his wife. He was shot once in the stomach and once in the head. Both of them were 23 years old and Robin was three months pregnant with the couple's first child. The police were called and they interviewed some witnesses who heard the gunshots. They spoke to Jay's sister and she said she saw a young man leaving the Fry home shortly after the gunshots were heard. Jay's sister then said something that changed the investigation. She said that Jay Fry was going to testify in court against 21-year-old Russell Samika of Juliet, Illinois. Samika was due in court for a traffic violation nine days after the murders. When he arrived at the courthouse, Jay's sister identified him as the man she saw leaving her brother's house. The police also realised that Jay Fry was not the only person who was set to testify against Samika. Ruth Martin was also supposed to testify at the same trial, and Michael Mansfield disappeared six days before he was going to testify against Samika on different charges. While killing witnesses before they had a chance to testify seemed like a logical motive, what the police had a hard time wrapping their heads around was why Samika felt like he had to kill witnesses in these cases. Michael Mansfield went to school with Samika and he was caught with records and a guitar that Samika had stolen from another dorm room. The police arrested Michael for possession of stolen goods and then offered him a deal. The charges against him would be dropped if he testified against Samika for theft and Michael took the deal. As for Samika's second trial, that stemmed from an incident at the Kroger's grocery store in Lincoln. Samika walked out of the store with stolen goods, and Jay Fry, who was an employee of the store, he chased after him. As Samika ran, he threw the stolen goods under Ruth Martin's car, the stolen goods being two rib-eye steaks that cost a total of $4. Both Jay Fry and Ruth Martin were set to testify against Samika for the shoplifting. Robin Fry was killed just because she happened to be with her husband when Samika went to kill him. Samika was charged with the murders of Jay and Robin Fry, and while he was in jail awaiting trial, he tried to arrange a hit on Jay's sister, who was going to testify against him. His cellmate snitched on him, and the hit was never carried out. Samika was found guilty and he was given two life sentences of 100 to 300 years in prison. Since the bodies of Michael Mansfield and Ruth Martin were still missing, Samika wasn't charged with their murders. Although he was the prime suspect, as Samika served his sentence in prison, he denied being involved in their disappearances. That was until, in October of 2011, 56-year-old Samika, who was now dying of a terminal illness, he started to change his story. He confessed to investigators that he killed Michael, but he wouldn't tell them where the body was. He then confessed to killing Ruth and burying her under Interstate 55, which was under construction at the time of her murder. He said that he killed her on the day that he abducted her and buried her later that night. But since he buried her at night, he could not remember the exact location of the body. Unfortunately, the bodies of Michael Mansfield and Ruth Martin have never been found. The police continue to look for their bodies, but they consider the murders solved.
1: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
0: Number 7. Daniel Wozniak. Samuel Hare was a young war veteran, having come home to Costa Mesa, California, from Afghanistan. He lived in his apartment alone, but frequently visited his parents, who lived nearby. On May 22, 2010, his father Stephen Hare got worried after not hearing from him for several days. He went to the apartment, opened the door, and found a woman dead on the floor. The woman was Julie Kabuski. She was friends with Samuels, and she was shot in the head. Stephen contacted the police, completely certain that his son was not responsible, despite evidence at the point not seeming that way. After all, Samuel Hare had previously gone to trial for murder when he was associated with gang activity before his time in the army. The gang he was a part of was so large that the murder case was broken down into two trials. During one trial, they were all found guilty. During the trial Samuel was in, they were all acquitted. It has been seen as a very controversial case because of this. So the man who had previously been acquitted for murder now had a dead woman in his apartment and was missing. The police also checked Julie's cell phone, seeing that Samuel had invited her over the night while being emotional. Police tracked Samuel's ATM card usage to Long Beach, which was about 20 miles away. Here, the card was used to order pizza at the home of 16-year-old Wesley Felich. Wesley was a teenager with no criminal record. He was arrested and told the police that the card was given to him by a friend and mentor, Daniel Wozniak, and Wesley was unaware it was stolen, that instead it was owned by a loan shark. Wozniak allegedly told Wesley to pull out the maximum at the ATM in cash. At that stage, almost $2,000 had been stolen. Daniel Wozniak was a theatre actor who lived next door to Samuel, and he had been acting in a play the night surrounding the murder. He was soon to be married to his fiancée, Rachel Buffet. Police took him into custody later that day, arresting him at his bachelor party, with his wedding only five days away. His story was initially that he and Samuel were doing a card scheme. He would steal all the money from the ATM, and then Samuel would report it stolen to the bank and get the money back. Then they would both get the money, and Wozniak would use his share to pay for his wedding and honeymoon. After more interrogation, Wozniak would then make a horrifying confession that Wozniak had murdered Samuel Hare to steal his money. Looking to misdirect the police, he then used Samuel's phone to contact Julie Kabuski to lure her to his apartment, where Wozniak shot and killed her too. He then staged the scene to make it appear as though she was sexually assaulted, suggesting that Samuel had killed her and then killed himself. Wozniak had murdered Samuel at a theatre on a military base, chopped up his body and disposed of it in Long Beach. After more than five years of court deliberations, Wozniak was convicted on two counts of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to death in September of 2016. He is currently incarcerated in California's San Quentin State Prison. Wozniak's then-fiancée, Rachel Buffet, was also arrested for her part in the crimes and charged with three felony counts of accessory after the fact for lying to investigators. As of the time of this recording, Buffet's charges were still pending, with a jury trial commencing in April of 2018. Number 6. Amanda Taylor When Amanda Taylor's friends were scrolling through Instagram in 2015, they found a shocking and disturbing post After fatally stabbing the father of her deceased husband, she posted a picture of herself and her accomplice with the caption, Everything I did was for the right reasons. I stabbed my father-in-law to death because he destroyed my husband. She also wrote, I wasn't the perfect wife, but this is the one good thing I could do. When the police discovered the body of Charles Taylor, it wasn't long before they were led to Amanda's alarming posts on social media. Amanda, whose late husband, Rex Taylor, had recently hung himself. Amanda blamed Charles for the murder of her husband, who she claimed had introduced him to drugs at a young age. She also allegedly discovered letters in which Rex confessed suffering from years of agonising abuse and neglect at the hands of his callous father. Rex had struggled with substance abuse problems for years and had left his shared home with his wife after she told him she didn't want him using drugs around their two young children. Three days before the murder, Amanda had been released from psychiatric care where she had undergone a short stay after a haunting and bizarre incident at the gravesite of her late husband, in which her friends feared that she would kill herself. She visited the grave on the day of her birthday, which she also shared with Rex. Other social media posts by Amanda included the claims, I proudly did this for Rex. I love my children, but Charlie killed my husband. And... I'm going to find my husband in hell and finally be at peace, the latter of which was accompanied by an image of a revolver resting on her thigh. She closed one of her messages with the line, Till we rot, Rex, till we fucking rot. In many of these posts, she seemed to imply that she was willing or ready to kill herself. Both Amanda and Rex were apparently obsessed with the macabre and murderous and were in regular contact with an incarcerated serial killer via written letters. Amanda's alleged accomplice, Sean Edward Ball, was later found with life-threatening injuries after Amanda had apparently tried to murder him while they were on the run. Her motives for doing so were unknown. Amanda was charged with first-degree murder. Number 5 Jim Lin. In April 2005, Simon Ning was at a low point in his life. He'd immigrated to the United States with his family and he lived in New York City. However, his parents had recently decided to move back to Hong Kong. He was left behind with his sister Sharon. The two shared an apartment but Sharon would often be out and not return until 10pm most nights. So Simon found himself alone most of the time. Understandably, Simon became depressed. Looking for a way to deal with his emotional state, he started blogging. On May 12, 2005, the police were called to Simon and Sharon's apartment in Queen's. 21-year-old Sharon Ning and 18-year-old Simon Ning were both dead. Sharon had been stabbed in the neck, while Simon had been stabbed 59 times. While looking for clues, the police found a blog post that Simon had made earlier that afternoon. It read, Anyway, today has been weird. At 3pm, some guy knocked on our door. I went down and recognised it was my sister's former boyfriend. He told me he wants to get his fishing poles back. I told him to wait downstairs while I went and got them. While I was searching for them, he was already in the house. He is still here, smoking. He is walking all around the house with his shoes on which, by the way, I just washed the floors two days ago. Hopefully, he will leave soon. The police had picked up Sharon's former boyfriend, Jim Lynn, and brought him in for questioning. He had dated Sharon for five years and they had broken up five months before the murders. When he was confronted with the blog posting, he admitted to killing Sharon and Simon. He said that he went to their apartment looking for money. He planned on moving back to Hong Kong, but he had to pay off some gambling debts so he needed money. He bound Simon to a chair with duct tape, and then he searched the apartment. At some point, he stabbed Simon to death and then waited for Sharon to come home. When she walked into the apartment, he ambushed her and stabbed her in the neck. Lynn was convicted and sentenced to life without parole. Number 4 Geraldine Kelly. Geraldine and John Kelly grew up in a rough neighborhood in Somerville, Massachusetts. In 1970, the young couple married, and only a year later, Geraldine gave birth. First to a daughter and then a son. The couple would argue often, especially after John had been drinking. In 1981, the couple were attending the wedding of a family member. And again, John once, no, and John once again drank too much. A brawl broke out between four men, and one of them was John. When the fighting was done, John's brother in law was dead. The death created problems for John with the rest of the family and, of course, with the police. He was certain that he was going to be indicted, so he decided to move his family away from Somerville. The family bounced around for a while before ending up in Ventura, California, with both Geraldine and John working at a motel besides Highway 101. Geraldine ran the front desk and John, who was a trained plumber, he did maintenance around the motel. In 1989, their children, who were 18 and 19 by this time, they moved out and became estranged from their parents. The main reason they moved out was because John and Geraldine fought often, and John was abusive at times. In early 1992, the owners of the motel noticed that John wasn't around anymore. Geraldine said that he had to go out of town, and while he was away, he was hit by a car and killed. She called her children and told them a similar story. Geraldine continued to manage the motel for six more years, and then in 1998, she decided to move back to her hometown of Somerville. In November of that year, Geraldine was dying of breast cancer. Her estranged daughter came to her bedside, and Geraldine made a startling confession. She said that she killed John, which isn't exactly all that shocking, But what was the shocking part of the confession, however, was the location of the body. She said that his body was in a freezer in a storage unit in Somerville. When Geraldine moved across the country months earlier, she sealed the freezer with duct tape and she had it shipped with the rest of her stuff. The truck driver being none the wiser that there was a body in the freezer. After Geraldine died on November 18, 1998, her daughter contacted the police. They found John's mummified remains in the freezer. He had been shot once in the back of the head. The bolt, which was fired from a thirty eight calibre handgun, was still in his skull. In the home where Geraldine had lived before she died, they found the murder weapon. Like her husband, she had held onto it for six years. Number 3. Natavia Lowry Linda Stein was an extremely wealthy New Yorker who had once co-managed such rock bands such as the Ramones, She eventually switched careers from the music industry to the real estate business and hired a personal assistant, Natavia Lowry. Lowry would eventually steal $30,000 from her boss, which resulted in a heated confrontation between Linda and Lowry. Lowry grabbed a heavy walking stick from Linda during the middle of the argument and hit her repeatedly in the head. Though she may have seemed remorseful about this in her confession, Lowry was so angry at the time of the murder that she did not remember how many times she used the walking stick before Linda Stein was dead from blunt force trauma to the head. Natavia Lowry was sentenced to a minimum of 32 years for her actions. Number 2. Bright Squires 14-year-old Gina Brooks spent the evening of August 5, 1989, watching her brother's baseball game. After the game, she returned home with her family to their Fredericktown, Missouri house, and she left again on her bike sometime between 10 and 10.30am. She was going to see her boyfriend, who lived six blocks away. When Gina did not return home by 2.30, her frantic mother contacted the police. The neighbourhood was searched and her bike was found abandoned on the road about five blocks from her home. The last confirmed sighting of Gina was near a church not far from where her bike was found. Three men in a light green, blue or grey station wagon were following her and they pulled up beside her at the church. They tried to talk to her as she stood beside her bike, but then she got on her bike and started to ride away. A few people, including her boyfriend, heard some screams and they saw the station wagon speed off towards the highway. Sadly, no trace of Gina has ever been found and it scarred the small town of Fredericktown. For years the case sat cold and then it took an unusual turn in September of 1996. A man named Bryant Squires was dying from cancer and AIDS-related complications in a St. Louis, Missouri hospital. In his last days, he told several nurses some horrible stories that he felt he needed to get off his chest before he died. These stories revolved around several brutal murders. The first murder he confessed to was the murder of Gina Brooks. He said he was the driver of the station wagon that night. Squires said that he and two other men, Nathan Williams and Timothy Bello, abducted her. Squires claimed that it was Williams who slit Gina's throat and that he and Bellow disposed of the body. Squires also confessed to abducting nine-year-old Angie Hausman, who disappeared on November 18, 1993, in St. Louis. Squire said that he and another man abducted Angie as she got off the school bus. Her body was found tied to a tree nine days after she went missing. She'd been tortured and had died from exposure. Who Squire's accomplice was in this abduction is unknown, but we know it wasn't William's. This was because Williams was in prison at the time for raping a minor. However, squires did say that Williams was involved in another murder. He then went on to say that in 1975, Williams murdered 23-year-old Laura Dinwiddle. Laura was a volunteer that worked with death inner-city children in St. Louis and was found dead in her apartment. She'd been stabbed and her throat was slit. She was nude, but she had not been raped. Williams was just 14 at the time of the murder. Squires died not long after making these confessions. In 1999, the police charged Bellow and Williams with the murder of Gina Brooks. Williams was also charged with the murder of Laura Dinwiddle. The FBI interviewed Bellow, who had a history of sex crimes and he said that Gina's body was in a freezer, and the freezer was buried on his father's 96-acre property. The FBI searched the property, but they did not find any trace of Gina. Because of this, the murder charge against Bellow was eventually dropped, and instead he was charged with lying to the FBI. He was convicted, and he was sentenced to 30 months in prison then both murder charges against Williams were dropped as well. The district attorney said that they believe he was responsible for both murders, but they did not have enough evidence to proceed with the trials. Squires' deathbed confessions were not admissible in court because he only told the nurses and not the police. And the nurses said they did not contact the police at the time because they did not believe that Squires was telling the truth. Williams is currently serving two consecutive life sentences with a minimum of 30 years on both sentences for raping, a, for raping a 10-year-old girl a month and a day after Gina Brooks went missing. He's also the prime suspect in the disappearance of 12-year-old Tammy Sedam. Tammy went missing from St Charles, Missouri on August 1, 1975. She was constantly running away from home, so her family did not report her missing right away. However, after not hearing for her for years, they thought she met with foul play. Williams told two different people that in the 1970s he abducted a girl from St Charles, that he raped her, stabbed her to death and then dumped the body. And like Gina, Tammy's body was never found. While Williams has been implicated in two disappearances and one murder, and he has bragged about committing as many as eight other murders to different witnesses, he has never been convicted for a single murder. He is currently incarcerated in Jefferson County Correction Centre. Number 1. David Heiss In September 2008, 21-year-old Joanna Wilton was living with her boyfriend, 20-year-old Matthew Pike, in an apartment in Nottingham, United Kingdom. The couple were gamers, and they ran a forum for the Game Boy series Advance Wars. On September 9, Joanna arrived home from work and she made a horrifying discovery. Her boyfriend, Matthew, was dead It was clear that he had been stabbed at least a dozen times. The police searched their apartment and found something interesting on the side of the computer. While eventually it was determined that Pike had been stabbed 83 times, amazingly he was able to write on the side of his computer in blood before he died. What was written was three letters, D-A-V they asked Joanna if these letters had any meaning to her. She told them they did because it told her who killed Matthew. It was a 21-year-old German office worker, David Heiss. She had met Heiss a year earlier in 2007 through the forum she and Matthew ran together. Heiss would spend up to eight hours a day on the forum chatting to Joanna and other fans of Advance wars. Heiss eventually became obsessed with Joanna and he sent her many emails declaring his love for her. In June 2008, three months before the murder, Matthew and Joanna came home from a vacation and found Heist there waiting for them. The couple put up the unannounced visitor for three days and then Heist went back to his home in Limburg, which is just outside of Frankfurt. A month later, and two months before Matthew was killed, Heiss showed up again at their apartment, unannounced. This time, the couple wasn't as hospitable, and Joanna told Heiss that they would never be together and to not return. They also blocked him from the forum. The police in Germany arrested Heiss, and he was extradited to the United Kingdom in November of 2008. Heist claimed that the stabbing was in self-defence. However, the police learnt that on the day of the murder, Heist flew from Frankfurt to Birmingham and then took a train to Nottingham. After only spending 16 hours in the United Kingdom, he flew back to Frankfurt. Heist also brought the murder weapon with him to the couple's apartment. This showed that the murder was premeditated and Heist had plenty of time to change his mind. Heist was sentenced to life in prison in May 2009 and he will have to serve at least 18 years. What would you like to see next mysteriously listed? Do you have a particular theme that interests you? Contact us on Facebook and Instagram at Mysteriously Listed. We are also on Twitter at Mysterious List. To find out what inspired us this episode, or our favourite podcast, if you wish to learn more about the cases we discussed today, and also to listen to each of our episodes, please visit mysteriouslylisted.com. If you like what you heard today, we would love your support by sharing on your social media of choice. You can also help the show if you could rate, review or subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast app. Audio production, research, additional writing and hosting is by me, Ally. Our music is by Mayu.